Too much happening. Can you turn it up a little louder? I can't tell you how exciting uh, this is for me because Bob said we talk to a lot of young couples. That's really not true. Most of the people I have uh, the privilege of speaking to are about half as old as dirt. So I'm thrilled to be here with you. I spent most of my life in the rock and roll business. I helped usher in Elvis to let you know how back far how far back I go. Uh, as was mentioned, uh, my wife and I are. Uh, working on our 41st year of marriage, having raised three teenage daughters. In fact, when I started raising teenage girls, I was six feet four, weighed 220, had a full head of hair, was a handsome devil. This is all that's left, friends. It's not, not easy raising teenage girls. Uh, um, and... After having achieved many of the goals that I had set for myself in becoming big-time disc jockey and having the advantages of all the things that it provided that I thought would bring happiness all over my entire body, I discovered it was a frustrating thing to set goals, begin to achieve them. They were not producing what you thought they were going to until finally my wife did something called receiving Christ, and I thought that was good because... She she was in desperate need. Uh, she was a nervous wreck and personally distraught. I had seen to that uh, because I became an alcoholic. I was involved uh, in popping pills and drinking a lot of booze because when you're in the media, you know, you're under a lot of pressure. You got ratings, you got a job, you don't, you're out. So I found this place about a mile south where I work, served this marvelous relaxant and to get loose. You know, you got to get loose. And, I used to consistently get so loose I could hardly move. And uh, wives are funny creatures. They don't welcome home husbands with open arms, and they come in smelling like a brewery bouncing off walls. Hi, honey. How did it go at the bar today? <laughs> so our marriage was at least a disaster. Divorce was not a matter of whether, just a matter of when. But my wife, having received Christ, began to be transformed right in front of me over such a long period of time, despite the chaos I was creating in the home that there was no other rational explanation for her dramatic change apart from Jesus Christ, whom she said now dwelt in her, and I could not deny it. And because of that, the time came just over 25 years ago when I gave my life to Christ because I had done everything I knew how to grab hold of life with everything that I had and missed it. And it's been a decision I have been eternally grateful for. I can't stand in a place like this without reminiscing and saying, what in the world is an old former drunken disc jockey like you doing in a place like this? And the answer is the marvelous, marvelous grace of God who can save a wretch like me. I began to pray for humility because you may not know this, but most rock and roll disc jockeys are not noted for being humble. I learned that God gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. I said, God, I want all the grace you can possibly give me. And I began to ask God to humble me. About six months later, I came down with rheumatoid arthritis and hemorrhoids. I said, God, that wasn't exactly what I had in mind, but if the right one doesn't get you, then the left one will. In fact, those of you up close enough to notice will obviously see that these hands will never do an Allstate commercial. You're in good hands with Allstate.
little house falls off, you know. Oh. <laughs> I gotta let you know, I, I do take a perverse delight in knowing that one of these days are gonna be two piles of dust. One will be me, the other will be Arnold Schwarzenegger, and nobody will be able to tell the difference. <laughs> That's probably Arnie there. That's a bigger pile. <laughs> I'm going to begin with an assumption. And the assumption is that you are here because to one degree or another you're seeking after knowledge and wisdom. Is that a stretch? For some of you, maybe, but the most. Here for knowledge and wisdom. And I would remind you that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Therefore, if you do not understand and live your life on the basis of the fear of the Lord, then even as believers in Christ, you are destined to live a life of ignorance and foolishness. Did you ever wonder why there were so many ignorant and foolish Christians around? No fear of the Lord. In fact, if I had to put my finger on one problem specifically, with the church and what the problem is, it's there's no fear of the Lord. And individually with Christians, no fear of the Lord. What's the fear of the Lord? I mean, if it's that important that we don't begin to know anything worth knowing or have any wisdom outside the rest of the wisdom of the world without the fear of the Lord, it seems to me to be a pretty good idea if we understood what it was. If you look it up in the Bible dictionary, it will say, um, a reverential awe. And certainly we ought to have a reverence for our God is indeed an awesome God. But let me give you a little more practical definition. The fear of the Lord is a healthy dread that I'm going to displease my dad. You're aware the Bible says, as many as receive Christ to them and only to them, God gave the right, the authority, the privilege of becoming the children of God. That is to those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. Can you imagine such a thing that having received Christ by faith, I can now call a holy God my father. I call Abba, Daddy. He is my Daddy. See, I never had a father. Not that we were too poor. Mine died. My dad died when I was two. I never knew what a father was. I knew three stepfathers, but I never knew a dad. You know, the, the greatest desire of any child, every one of you in this room, at one time or another in your life, more than anything in this world, wanted to hear your dad say, Boy, way to go. I'm so proud of you. Good job. Had a girl. Had a boy. Some of us never heard that. Some of us never heard it. But that doesn't mean that that great desire to hear those words were not there. And now through no fault of my own, by God's marvelous grace, I have, and so do you if you've received Christ for the first time in your life, a perfect Father who loves me perfectly, who makes no mistakes, who has promised he will allow nothing to come into my life as a sovereign God as well as my dad that's greater than I can bear. Nothing comes into my life that isn't first filtered through him, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. What a wonderful thing to know you've got a dad like that. And what's the natural desire of any child's heart? What ought to be our greatest fear then? I taught my older two girls, I'm sorry to say, to be in obedience to me out of fear 
of bodily harm. I began by, first of all, raising my voice to a volume where they knew they were in big trouble. Some would call it yelling at them. I was just raising my volume. But they knew they could keep doing what they were doing, no matter how loud I got until they saw me up on my feet, coming at them with fire, coming out of my nostrils, knowing that they were in big trouble. And I'm also ashamed to say the time often came when I ended up with a handful of hair in a drunken stupor, and it is by God's grace that I didn't physically injure my girls. But I taught them to be in obedience to me, out of fear. And then the third little girl came along. I figured you've got to treat all your kids exactly alike, right? So I began to treat her as I treated the others. When she was out alive, I raised my voice. And from the time she knew what life was all about, a strange thing happened with this one kid. I raised my voice to her and she collapses in a little pool of emotional tears. Oh, Daddy, I am so sorry that I did that. I'll never do that again. And come over and hug my leg. And I'm saying, what have I got here? Is this a child? I don't know what this is. I've never seen anything like this. And you know, from the day when she was just a toddler until today, as 34 years old, you know what her greatest fear is? Not that I'm going to beat the snot out of her or cut her out of the will, God forbid. Her greatest fear is that she's going to say something, do something that will break her daddy's heart. Do you, do you know what my attitude is toward that child? Now, I love all my girls. And I love them all alike. But let me tell you, there's something about that one that I go out of my way. I look for things to do for her. In fact, I would do more for her, except my resources are limited. Can you imagine what a father's heart is toward a child who lives her life on the whole basis that she's going to disappoint somehow her daddy by some word she says, some act she does, some thought she clings on to. And if a father, an earthly, imperfect, flawed, earthly father has a heart like that toward his child who has that attitude, guess, guess what a heavenly father's attitude is toward a, a child like that? I'll tell you exactly what it is because he doesn't leave us in the dark. He says, the one who fears God. God will give him the desires of his or her heart. You see, we have a father whose sources are unlimited. And the eyes of the Lord move to and fro over all the earth. That being true, it means the eyes of the Lord right now are moving to and fro over this auditorium. You know what he's looking for? He's looking for a young man, a young woman, some young man, some young, any young man, any young woman, what kind, whose heart is completely his. Why? So he can show himself strong to that one. The fear of the Lord, the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, a healthy dread that I'm going to somehow break my father's heart. The other side of that coin is stated by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, where he said, My ambition is, one of the most ambitious men who ever walked on the face of the earth, he said, My ambition is no matter where I am here on this earth or in the presence of the Lord one day, no matter where I am, my ambition is 
to be pleasing to the Lord. That's the fear of the Lord. On the one hand, a healthy dread, I'm going to disappoint him. On the other, an ambitious desire to want to please my dad and everything I think, everything I say, everything I do. That ought to be the natural desire of any child's heart. The Lord Jesus lived life on this earth with that same attitude. He said, I do only that which pleases my Father. When that becomes your motive for living, when that becomes the bottom line of why you live your life, it'll change your attitude toward every area. It'll change the way you do the work that you go into, whatever it is. Why are you going to go out and work hard and give it everything you got? What's the reason for doing that? Well, listen, I'm not stupid. I know the harder I work, the more I give, then I'm going to get the promotion. I'm going to make more money, and I want the nice house, and I want the nice cars, and I want the promotion rather than this jerk or jerk S who is also competing for the same position I'm competing for. So here's why I go out. I'm going to work harder than anybody else because I want the raise. I want the stuff. I want the recognition among my peers that I'm the best that there is in this profession. What happens if you knock yourself out and give it everything you got and the other person gets the promotion and they're downsized and they keep others and you're laid off? If that's your motive for the way you do your work, what's your attitude going to be? Well, there's a country and western song that describes it very, very nicely about taking that job <laughs> and doing something. Well, there are, what, four country and western fans here, I guess. You see, you're going to hate your job, you're going to hate your employer, you're going to think it's worthless. In terms of a marriage, it'll affect the way you live life with your mate. Why are you going to be nice and kind and sweet and loving? Well, hopefully, she'll be nice and kind, sweet and loving back, have a few less headaches. So, you know, I'm not stupid, I'm going to be nice to her. Hopefully, she'll be nice back to me. Why are you going to be nice to him? Why are you going to voluntarily, as a wife, place yourself under his authority and let him wear the pants of the family? Well, hopefully, he'll be loving and he'll love me as Christ loved the church. And that's what, well, what if you give and give and give and give and you get nothing in return? If that's your motive to get him shaped up, her shaped up to be the Maya man woman that you thought you married and it doesn't come about, what's your attitude toward the marriage? Well, I hate it. I made a mistake. Thought I was in love. I really wasn't. I'm out of here. You see, why are you, go why are you going to do your job with everything you got, whatever it is, whether it's the ministry out in the secular world? Why are you going to give it everything you got? Well, because I know it pleases my dad. You see, I don't work for them. I work for him. How do you know it pleases your dad? Well, he tells me right in his word that whatever I do, I do it heartily with all my heart as unto the Lord. You know, I never worked for anybody who ever paid me what I thought I was worth. Not ever. And I got to the place where I hated the people I was working for, the station I was working for, the job I was working at. Why? Because my motive was to get money, get ahead, recognition. But then suddenly my attitude began to change, and I said, wait a minute, I forgot why I'm here. I forgot what my motive for living is. As a believer in Christ, I've got a father. And they may never know. They may never appreciate me. But my dad, he doesn't miss a trick. He knows exactly not only what I'm doing, but he knows my heart and he knows the reason I'm doing it is to please him because I've got a perfect father you, you think that's going to go unnoticed why are you going to love your mate well because I know what pleases my dad 
I mean, what if you don't get any response? Things don't go the way you want to. It doesn't make any difference. I won't like it, of course, and, and it will put stress in that. But, but the bottom line is I'm, I'm doing it for him, not for her, not for him. I'm doing it for, for my dad because I may never be appreciated. It'll affect those debatable issues of the Christian life, not the blacks and whites that God clearly lays out in his word, but is it all right to suck on a Coors out on the beach, hot summer day? Oh, no. You're not going to put alcohol in the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, yes. God just says don't get drunk. You can have a nice cold beer. Is it all right to play cards? Oh, no. Good Christians don't play cards. Well, sure, I've got freedom in Christ to be able to play cards. All right to go to that movie? Oh, you're not going to no movie, are you? Oh, my God. Well, yes, I've got great freedom in Christ. I need to be selective, but I can do that. What about these debatable issues? What's right? What's wrong? Is this right? Is that wrong? What's the problem? Wrong question. Wrong question. What's the question? Will it please my dad? Will it please my dad? And if I'm not sure it'll please my dad, and even if it's right, then why do it? Because that's not why I'm here. That's not my motive for living. My motive is, in everything I think, everything I say, everything I do, I want to please my father. Nobody else may ever appreciate me, but, but I know my perfect dad does. Now, we're in a real world, and let's be really practical as we go to God's word to find out what pleases our father. And realize that we have the one indwelling us that only does that which pleases our Father. Doesn't mean that we're going to always want to please our dad. Because more often than not, we're faced with choices whether we've got to choose whether I am going to do that which pleases my Father or do that which pleases me or somebody else. And the tragedy is, when it comes to this, I cannot please both. I've either got to please me, or please my father, or please somebody else, but not my father. Inevitably, more often than not, God loses. Because we get the attitude, with some little nugget of truth, that God's prime concern is my happiness. As a child of the Father, more than anything else, He wants my happiness. So I need to do that which makes me happy. And so I choose to do that which pleases me. As if somebody, listen, why, why should you want to when it hurts, when it's going to cost you something, when you may lose friends, when you may lose a job, when you may be an outcast? Why in the world would you want to choose that which pleases your dad when you can do that which pleases you? I mean, after all, you're saved by grace, justified by faith. You've got a father who is yours permanently, and you're his child, you're in his Christ's hands, and he's in the Father's hands, and he'll never let you go. That being true, then why shouldn't I choose to please myself occasionally? I'm living in grace. Well, let me give you some of the reasons the Apostle Paul gives in Second Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 9, he said, here's my ambition no matter where I am, to be pleasing to the Lord. Why, Paul? Why, when you could choose under grace to at least occasionally do what you want to do? I mean, you've got a father who is understanding, who is forgiving. I can't tell you how many times a week I hear Christians say, well, yes, I'm involved in that which I know is sin, but God's a forgiving God. 
isn't he? Why should I do that which pleases my father instead of that which pleases me? Paul said, let me give you the first reason in verse 10. Because, for, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We, he's talking about believers. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That has nothing to do with justification. We'll never stand before God judgment one of these days to be judged for our sin because that was paid for in full when Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place and mine and paid for our sins. But, you see, all believers will stand before that bema, that judgment seat. What for? Well, 1 Corinthians 3 says what for? For the handing out of rewards. What kind of father do you think you've got? When he sees you living your life for the prime motive of pleasing him, that when you get into his presence, he doesn't have great rewards for you, what kind of a dad would that be? And he's going to stand before him as to why your deeds were done. What you did as a believer, whether it was good or whether it was bad, what determines whether that which we do is good or bad? What determines that which we will be rewarded for, that which we won't? First Corinthians 3 says the foundation is laid, Jesus Christ. We build upon that foundation as Christians. We build wood, hay, stubble. Bad. Gold, silver, precious stones. Good. Two types of building material. What determines good or bad? What determines gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble? Well, in First Corinthians chapter 4, after going through the rewards section in chapter 3, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 4, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but you wait till the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and will disclose, what? The motives of men's and women's hearts. And then each one's praise will come to him from God. This is going to be a time of great joy when rewards are going to be handed out based on what? How much you did? Were you busy, busy, busy for Jesus? Were you continually doing the work of the Lord? Do you understand what that verse says? It says, God doesn't give a rip about what you do. For him as a believer. He doesn't care what you what What's he concerned about? The only thing he's concerned about, not what you do, but why are you doing it? It's the motive. Are you doing it for one reason, one reason only, to please your dad? Because I know it pleases my father. Are you doing it because it pleases you? Are you doing it because you get recognition from others? Are you doing it because it makes you feel good? Are you doing it for any other reason except to please your father? Wood, hay, stubble. Bad. No rewards. Just prior to that, Paul said, listen, I'm not even sure of my own heart. Sometimes I'm not even sure of my own motives. But my dad is. My father knows exactly why I did what I did. Because he alone is able to judge the motives of people's hearts. That's why he said, don't go passing judgment on others. Don't do that. You wait till the Lord comes because he will separate the motives and hand out the rewards. Some of you think you're not very gifted. I could never stand up in front of a chapel and speak. And, you know, I just 
move chairs, I make coffees, I go down and visit some kids in the hospital, I do some little things. Why? It's the Billy Grahams, it's the John MacArthur Juniors, it's the big people of this world who give, boy, they're going to stand before the Lord, get rewards one of these days. Listen, gang, you don't have any clue as to why I'm here this morning. You don't know what my motive is, and for all you know, I just get my kicks out of trying to dazzle people with my mouth work. You don't know the money. And so don't, don't go passing judgment to say, oh, this one's going to get great stuff. Look what they're doing for Jesus. Well, you, you know, I mean, who knows? They don't even know your name. You're a nobody in this school, and you may go through the rest of your life being a number. Nobody really knows. You're just, oh, do you, what kind of a dad do you think you've got? Doesn't make any difference what you do, what you're not able to do, what you're able to do. Why are you doing it? Are you doing it for him because you know what pleases him? Listen, you think he misses that? There'll be some of you whose names will never be known, will be standing before him one of these days. And he's going to say, well done. Well done, my daughter. Well done, my child. Paul said, don't ever forget that. Doesn't matter what you do, whether it gets recognition or not, before men. Some of you will, some of you won't. God doesn't give a rip. He cares about why did you do what you did. Was it to please him? Great rewards for those in heaven. He said, let me give you another reason why I will inevitably and always choose to please God, to be in obedience to him rather than please me. He says the second reason, in verse 11, 2 Corinthians 5, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. The word here is literally terror. It's not the fear of the Lord in the context we're talking about. He says, I know there's not, going to be, there's not only going to be a judgment for believers one of these days, when God rewards the motives, but I know there's going to be a judgment day for unbelievers also. And I want to be able to persuade people that they can have sins forgiven in Christ. I want to be able to persuade others of the good news of salvation by grace, not by works. And the inference here is, how am I going to be able to persuade anybody if I say one thing with my mouth and live something else with my life? How am I going to earn a hearing from anybody? How am I going to persuade, get their ear, have them listen? If I am living a life just like they are to please me, me, me. Who's going to pay any attention to that? Who's going to listen to me? They're going to point to me like they do other people inside the church and say, Oh, are you kidding me? Sure, I know what they do on Sunday and I know they went to a Bible college or something. See, I live with them. I work with them Monday through Saturday. Let me tell you, there's no reality to it. You think you're going to be able to persuade anybody if your life doesn't back up what your mouth says? Who are you going to persuade? Who's going to listen to you? Why should they want your Jesus Christ if he doesn't make any difference in your life? Why should they want it for his? Paul said, I've got some friends, I've got some family, I've got some co-workers, I've got some loved ones who are on their way to an eternal hell without Christ, and I want to be used by God as a tool to persuade them of the error of their direction and that there is another road, there is another way, and that way is the person of Christ. I want to persuade. That's why I will always choose to do that which pleases my Father when it comes down to a choice when I have to choose to please Him or please me. Because I want to be used of God to lead somebody else to the same grace and saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that I have found 
He said, let me tell you another reason. Verse 12, middle of the verse, I want to give you an occasion to be proud of us. That you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. You see, some people are going to be watching you and they don't care about that you're a Christian under construction. That uh, you haven't arrived yet, you're only human, that you're not perfect, you're forgiven, and all the other little bumper stickers. All they know is what they see. And they don't know that your heart has been changed, and they don't know that Christ is in you. All they're going to do is make a judgment on the basis of how they see you live. You know, that's why your mom and dad always say to you, and we said to our kids, okay, we're going over to Anna Lane's house, kids. Now, let me tell you something. Please say, please, and yes, and thank you, and don't punch your little cousins in the mouth. Don't jump up and down on their furniture. Be nice, be kind. You know why we say that to our kids? Because we knew that the people we're visiting would make a judgment about us as parents based upon our children's behavior. Sometimes there'll be a fair judgment, sometimes unfair. You wonder why your reputation? Because the way some people see his children behave. And they don't know you're a baby in Christ. They don't know you're just now growing. All they know is you claim to be a Christian. They just take pride in appearance only. And he said, I want you to be proud of me. I don't want you, and you will never, by God's grace, hear the fact that I cheated on my wife or that we got a divorce or that I absconded with some ministry money. You'll never hear that. Why? Because I want you to be able to say, well, we had a guy come and we are proud of him because he's lived it. That his life backs up what he says. And more than that, I, I want my dad to be proud of me and I want you to be proud of me because he also says, you see, I'm representing my father down here. And people are going to make a judgment of my dad, who is absolutely perfect, never make any mistakes, but they're going to make a judgment call upon him by the way I behave. And he said, that's why when it comes to a choice of living to please me, and at the same time displeasing my father in order to do that, I'll never do that. Because I am his representative. He goes on this chapter to say that we are his ambassadors. Whoa, what a job title, huh? ambassador but the job description takes all the glamour out of it servant slave bond servant that's how you represent your father you're giving 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 never expecting anything in return you're more concerned about others than you are about yourself and when people see that they say wait a minute what's going on here but people judge your father by the way you and I behave as his children. But he said, let me tell you something else. The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. He said, let me tell you, the most impelling motive for me to live my life to please my dad. It's out of response for his great love for me. I mean, God sent his only son to die for me. It's by his grace and his grace alone that I am forgiven and, and have eternity assured and have the power to live life down here pleasing to him. You see, I can sin against God's law. 
In fact, the Bible says, I will sin against God's law because there's something about the law that stirs up sin in us if we didn't even think of it. If somebody says, thou shalt not, something rises up and says, wait a minute, I shall. Tell me I shall not. Up in northern Arizona in the piney woods where people go to big macho men. I mean, these are big macho men hunting for Bambi and various other animals up there in the woods. They'll go up there with their rifles and their guns on the way up there. And there are signs along the highway saying, no shooting. I've never seen one of those signs that was not full of bullet holes. <laughs> not ever. I mean, here big gold mature men driving down the highway. What are they after? Deer, elk, moose. Cougar, lion, bear, whatever moves. No shooting. Wait a minute, hand me my gun. <laughs> you know what you're going to tell me not to shoot? I'll shoot him. I feel like shooting. Stay off the grass. Just tell me, stay off the grass. I'll get on the grass if I want. Wet paint, don't touch. There. Yeah, that's right, it is wet paint, but don't tell me not to touch it. <laughs> Something about the law. We'll sin against the law. But how, how can you sin against the grace and love of your Father who loved you and gave himself for you? How can I sin against his love? For you see, the one who's been forgiven much, loves much. Some of you approach your Christianity as though you've been saved from what? Well, I had a big red zit right here. And Took care of it. Boy, I'm clean now. You see, we're, we're talking death here. We're talking terminal disease. And some of you just think you're little sinners. Well, at least I don't do that. I've never done that. I'm just a little sinner. Listen, if you're just a little sinner, all you need is just a little savior. <laughs> and friends, there is no such thing. There is not such a one. The one who has been forgiven much, loves much, how can I sin against the love of a father like I have? He said, it is the love of Christ that compels me. Therefore, I must not go passing judgment upon others because I, I don't know their hearts. And Lord, I know you're looking for a heart that more than anything else wants to please you. I know it not always will. I, I still stumble and fall and goof, but Lord, that's my heart's desire. You know, that's why God could say about David after the fact, after the murder, after the adultery. God could say about David, he was a man after my own heart. Why? Because his heart's desire after everything else was removed and his own will didn't get in the way. He wanted to please his dad more than anything else. That's the only way God could have said that about that young man. And the older man that sinned against God, God knew what the desire of his heart was. The Apostle Paul said, I know Jesus. I know him. I just don't know about him. I know him. And there was a time when I judged people according to the flesh. I looked around to find the good religious people, the good Christians, and I watched what they were doing, and I said, oh, those are really having an impact for God, but those over there are not doing much. These are the ones. And he said there was a time when I even judged Jesus Christ on that basis. Let me read something to you that Major Ian Thomas 
said years ago, as he looked through the eyes of Saul of Tarsus at Jesus Christ. He said, there was a time when as Saul of Tarsus, I made my own independent evaluation of this man called Jesus of Nazareth. I investigated into his life to see if the leader of this Nazarene cult was worth following. Now, I made my own independent evaluation of what he was worth. Now, I wasn't unfair and I wasn't unkind. I applied to him all the normal, natural standards by which any life is evaluated in any age. I looked first into his ancestry. I discovered there was a cloud over his birth right from the start. As I investigated, it became quite clear that he was the illegitimate son of a faithless woman who had been taken in by a kind-hearted carpenter and raised as his own son. But he was an outcast from the beginning, and socially, now socially, he was worth absolutely nothing. I investigated his professional standing. I discovered he was born of peasant stock. He had attended no schools. He was raised as a simple carpenter in a village of no standing in Israel. And professionally, he, he was worth nothing. As Saul of Tarsus, I investigated his theological and ecclesiastical background. I found that he had sat at nobody's feet. He had been to no seminary. He had no theological training. In fact, he was repudiated by all the ecclesiastical authorities of his day. He was nothing but an incorrigible street preacher and a tub-thumping rabble-rouser. And as far as his theological standing was concerned, he, he was worth absolutely nothing. Furthermore, I looked into his standing financially. I found he had no bank account. He was born in a cave, laid in a borrowed manger, lived in other people's homes. He was an incorrigible scrounger. He was always borrowing things. He borrowed money to pay his taxes. He borrowed his clothes from other people. He rode around on a borrowed donkey. He died on a borrowed cross and was buried in a borrowed tomb financially from the standpoint of the accumulation of this world's goods. He was worth absolutely nothing. So as I investigated and applied to him the normal standards by which any life is evaluated, I discovered that this man Jesus of Nazareth was not worth following. He, he was worth nothing. But on the Damascus Road, something happened. There in the blinding flash of a moment, I looked into the face of a man, and I saw God. I discovered that he, whom I thought to be worth nothing, was the Lord of everything, that he was the God of glory, that everything that is made is upheld by the word of his power, that he is behind all things, and he's the very imprint and image of God. And there I found that he, whom I thought to be nothing, was everything. And I, whom I thought to be everything, was nothing. In that moment, I came to a tremendous reversal of all the values of my life. Later, I learned that I, who was nothing, could be filled with him who was everything. And that would make my life something. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To keep from living a life of ignorance and foolishness, what must be your motive for living? Or oh, more than any other fear, 
is that I'm going to do something to break my dad's heart, to grieve him. I'm going to say something. I'm going to dwell on some thought that he's completely aware of. I'm going to get into some behavior, some activity that may please me, but I know I'll break my dad's heart. My greatest desire is to do only that which pleases my father. Have you come to the place where there has been a tremendous reversal in all the values of your life? If you don't, Take it not only from the promise of God's word, but one who lived 35 years of his life based on accomplishment and what it is that I do and how it is that I impress other people and how much stuff can I accumulate. And let me tell you, it leads to nothing but despair. Somebody's lying to us, gang. And who you're going to believe and on what basis you live your life will determine whether you experience the reality of Christ came to give right now while you're down here these few years that are left. And when you stand before your father one day and long to hear those words more than anything else, nobody else ever appreciated you. Nobody else ever loved you unconditionally. Nobody ever knew what you did. But let me tell you, I just want to say, well done, my son, well done, my daughter. I knew it all, and I have great rewards for you. Welcome into my glory. May it be our heart's desire, Father, as we close in prayer to hear those words more than any other. Would you give us a hunger and desire in our hearts, a passion more than anything else, to live life with a pure motive of pleasing you in everything. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.